This is really a story about a group of people who felt that their future was getting bleaker. They were finding it harder and harder to make ends meet. And there was this whole host of huge structural systemic things that were the cause of it. But they looked at this small number of refugees, of people that looked different from them, and they said, let's get rid of them and everything will be great again. That's Kirk Wallace Johnson. We talk with him about his book, The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and a Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast. It's a gripping account of a small town set on fire by hatred, xenophobia, and ecological disaster, and the woman who fought to save it. Then our 2005 interview with that woman. We re-air our interview with Diane Wilson about her book, An Unreasonable Woman, a true story of shrimpers, politicos, polluters, and the fight for Seadrift, Texas. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. They call it the Cancer Belt. The Texas Gulf Coast used to be home to some of the richest fishing grounds in America, but it was laid waste by the toxic pollution pouring into its waters from chemical companies and oil refineries. As long ago as the 1970s, the fishing industry began its decline. But instead of fighting the polluters who were taking their livelihood away, the local fishermen blamed the Vietnamese refugees who had recently begun moving to the area. They invited in the KKK to drive the Vietnamese out, except for one fisherman, or fisherwoman to be exact. Diane Wilson fought the chemical companies and made common cause with the Vietnamese. And eventually, her heroism won over the white fisherman, too. Kirk Wallace Johnson tells the story with cinematic flair in his book, The Fisherman and the Dragon. Kirk Wallace Johnson is an author and screenwriter. His other books are The Feather Thief and To Be a Friend is Fatal, The Fight to Save the Iraqis America Left Behind. Kirk Wallace Johnson, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for having me. The Fisherman and the Dragon, you write that this book is about a racist backlash against refugees fleeing a ruinous war. Set the stage for us. Tell us about sea drift and the shrimping communities around this area of the Gulf in the opening years that the book covers soon after the end of the Vietnam War. Sure. So the the Texas Gulf Coast in the 70s was already kind of struggling under the weight of the petrochemical industry, which was expanding up and down that that coastline, refining oil, producing all kinds of chemicals and plastics and other, frankly, toxic stuff. Uh, But there was still an industry of shrimpers and crabbers that there were two groups, those that would work in the bays and those that would go out into the deep gulf. And the book unfolds or opens in this small town of Sea Drift, uh, which is a fishing town about halfway down the Texas Gulf Coast, population of maybe 800 people or so at the start. And there is a somewhat 
depending on how you look at it, but there's a somewhat idyllic or, or hard scrabble way of life. You've got a lot of guys that wake up early in the morning to go run their crab traps or go out and, and drag the bays for shrimp. And no one was getting rich down there, but they were making ends meet. But that was all also being pressured by this period of the great inflation and rising fuel prices and globalization where, you know, the the shrimp that they were catching would now had to compete against farmed shrimp from Indonesia or Thailand. So, I mean, it's a somewhat, I'm painting a somewhat naughty, dense picture of this, of this geography in America, because it, it wasn't like it was all rosy, but then things really started to change after the fall of Saigon in April 75. The United States started uh, to admit hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese and Laotian refugees. And the Texas Gulf Coast, specifically around Galveston Bay, became the second largest community of resettled Vietnamese in the country. And many of those Vietnamese had been fishermen back home. And so in this in this context, in the in the mid to late 70s, you had a group of white shrimpers and crabbers that had traditionally dominated this fishing world that at first were kind of relieved or happy to have all of these Vietnamese come because they were almost like like a mark for them. They were they were able to unload a bunch of decrepit fishing boats on the Vietnamese community, sometimes at five or ten times the actual value of these boats. And they were playing them for suckers pocketing the money and, and, you know, patting themselves on the back. But, but what happened was that the Vietnamese went out to work on these boats. They fixed them up. They used family members as deck hands. They ate fish that white people considered junk fish in order to cut down on costs. They lived eight or 10 people to a trailer. When they were denied access to, to loans from banks, they loaned each other money. And within a few years, they were pushing brand new boats out. And the whites, frankly, started to panic. And that, that's really the, the atmospheric pressure that, that the book opens in. Aside from the racism, I mean, this is one of the interesting contrasts between the solidarity among the Vietnamese and the, the so-called rugged individualism of the uh, whites that, that really didn't do them any good. Yes, that's exactly right. I spent so much time with with shrimpers, both white and Vietnamese, while investigating this book. And it's a real point of pride for the white fishermen to say that they've always been their own boss. No one's the boss of them. They determine their own schedule. They are hardcore go-it-aloners. The Vietnamese, I didn't meet a single one who didn't have help from 10 other Vietnamese people, some of whom they didn't even know, to help them buy or build their first boat or to buy or build their first home. You know, this is partly, I think, a, a cultural thing, but also by necessity because they were so isolated and the only people that understood them were the other Vietnamese in town that they they really, they stayed close to each other. And, and in some cases, that gave them a very clear economic advantage. The, the the white shrimpers always griped, they still do, that that these were communists that were coming to 
to take over the bays. And, and they viewed any form of collaboration by their Vietnamese competitors as, as communism, when in fact they were the Vietnamese were just operating under the same rules of capitalism. They were just working together and being a bit smarter about it. So like an example, like normally a, a white shrimper would go out, they would drag the bays, you pull up the catch, you you call out the crabs and all of the other fish that other um things that you can't sell. So you just have your shrimp. And then you, you go back to the fish house at the end of the day, and the fish house operator will take all of your shrimp and he'll give you an average between small, medium, large, and jumbo shrimp, each of which fetch their own price. Now, this will sound really kind of nerdy and obscure, but they, you, you would get an average. The Vietnamese realized that there might be a more precise accounting if they themselves separated the shrimp into those sizes before coming back to the fish house. And so one shrimper would tie up two or three boats behind them while they rode back into town. Uh, and so the other shrimpers would then have the freedom to sort their catch and they they would get more money because it was a more precise accounting. So, I mean, there's there's ways to like, really generalize about all of this, but like the, the Vietnamese had just lost everything. They'd lost their country. They were thrown into an incredibly strange and what quickly became a hostile terrain. And so they were really in a kind of survival framework. Uh, and they, they worked incredibly hard. They would go out and fish in weather that white people wouldn't. Now, I'm not trying to paint all white shrimpers and fishermen as just lazy, but they could not compete with what the Vietnamese were doing once they arrived. And this this kind of contrast becomes very important in the book. I mean, it sounds like it's it's kind of at the level of the margins or details, but it's not. This inability to see common interest on the part of the whites really led to a, a more profound inability for them to rescue themselves from the common enemies that they had, which were, in fact, the, the devastating impacts that were emanating from the plastics, chemical, and oil industries that have devastated the Gulf. So connect the dots here. I mean, and there are other examples. We'll get into the story of Diane Wilson, who I interviewed actually, I think back in 2008 about her book. I mean, she's a real hero in this book. And I think it's not, it's not an accident that it's a woman who is in fact one of the, you know, the only person who really does see the common interests that they all have in fighting the big uh, chemical companies. But connect the dots between this kind of culture of individualism and the inability to actually come together in a larger sense and how the racism really undermined the interests of the whites as well as hurting the Vietnamese. Sure. Well, maybe one one example is in the case of Billy Joe Aplin, which is where the book opens. And he is a, a very individualistic crabber who's been kind of He's had a string of bad luck. He he was a shrimper. He lost his shrimp boat. Uh, and now he's trying to kind of make ends meet and provide for his family. But he kept going out to the bays to pull up his traps and he, he would find these mutated crabs. And he started to suspect that the petrochemical plants that had received all of these permits to discharge this toxic slurry into the bays every day, that those plants were the reason for this. But when he 
wrote a letter to try to galvanize some sort of opposition to this industry to amongst his fellow fishermen. He wanted to create a you know a legal a legal fund to start suing these plants and to clean up the bays. That letter yielded nothing. He recruited no allies. He, I mean, all of these shrimpers. The thing that you have to understand is that there's a season for shrimping, and so on the off season, when there there's no other way to make money, the only other real employers in town are these petrochemical plants, and so most of these shrimpers work at the very plants that are ruining these bays in the off season, and so for them to now join forces to fight the plant would have been in their mind sawing off their own their own leg and so billy joe applin really didn't get anywhere with this environmental mobilization and you know in in this kind of haze of of defeat and frustration about where he saw things going he goes out one day and he finds that a young vietnamese crabber has dropped his traps too close to billy joe's now, there's no laws against this. There are unwritten rules of the Bay, but quite honestly, the Vietnamese did not understand those rules right when they got here. I mean, imagine if we somehow ended up becoming refugees and ended up in Vietnam, we would be putting our foot in it every other day, unaware of what the local moors are. But Billy Joe just snapped. He pulled this young Vietnamese man's traps up. He smashed them. He threw them into the Bay. And then over the course of the coming month, after there had been this kind of altercation with that man where the a number of a handful of other Vietnamese crabbers rallied to his defense and there was a kind of fight out on the water, Billy Joe just became obsessed with getting rid of, I mean, he was giving death threats to this young man. He slashed his tires. He aimed a rifle at him. And that young man, whose name was Sao Van Nguyen, went out and bought himself a gun because he was concerned for his safety. And this all boiled over one night when Billy Joe approached Sal down by the docks, started pummeling him, and then drew a knife and cut him across the chest. And I'm kind of simplifying things here, but Sal eventually pulled a, his pistol and shot Billy Joe dead. And that moment is when the book and when this story really, I think, accelerates. Because then, then the environmental issues that were, as you said, the true threat to these shrimpers and crabbers. All of those receded into the background and this became a race issue. It became a racism issue where the Ku Klux Klan came in, Vietnamese boats and homes were firebombed. There were open and explicit calls to just get rid of the Vietnamese and to get them off the coast. White fishermen formed groups to try to stop Vietnamese refugee admissions altogether into the United States. And they ran to the Texas governor to beg for a ban on refugees. And when that failed, that's when the Klan really stepped up its involvement. And so very quickly, like the race kind of took over this story. So talk about Lewis Bean, the grand dragon of the Texas KKK. It's kind of interesting. I was reading your book he had previously been arrested on charges of bombing the Houston Pacifica station, which is my newest participating station that has taken the show on to air. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as far as I know, it is the first time that a radio station in the United States was taken offline in, in an act of domestic terrorism. 
and when that station was blown up they were playing i forgot the name of the song but it's a it it was like a an anti-vietnam war song uh when the bombs went off yeah i mean lewis beam i mean it's i still there's a part of me that just smirks every time i hear the the word grand dragon that is his title but there's you know the the clan gives themselves all these lofty sounding titles but it's for the most you know base instincts and base people so it's you know it's uh, there's a part of me where i'm like i feel like i'm talking about some you know like my son is into pokemon and there's all these sort of fancy titles and extra points that you can get you know it's like it's just it's idiocy to me but Lewis Beam was a a highly decorated veteran of the Vietnam War. He was a door gunner, which was arguably the most dangerous uh, role in that entire war. He was already a white supremacist before he went to Vietnam. But when he came back and then saw the fall of Saigon, he got a tattoo that said born to lose. And he, he kind of became convinced that the true enemy was the United States government for losing the war, um, for going soft. And he cast around and, and explored several different white supremacist organizations before joining the Klan. And he quickly rose the ranks to become the Grand Dragon. Uh, and this was, you know, there's a there's a great scholar, Kathleen Ballou, who wrote a book called Bring the War Home a, a few years ago. But she she writes very convincingly about how the white supremacist movement was invigorated by the the fall of Saigon, by the end of the Vietnam War, and by returning veterans, uh, many of whom were were angry at their government for losing the war that they felt they were winning. So Lewis Beam had he had been kind of dabbling in Klan work. He had founded a militia called the Texas Emergency Reserve which had a number of active duty servicemen in it from Fort Hood. They had secret training camps and they would train on federal grasslands. They would train in these camps that made national news because they were training Boy Scouts once on how to kill people, how to strangle them to death. And every time he made news, he would get fired from whatever his day job was. And so he had right around when the book begins, he had just made this shift to full-time Klan work. But in order for that to work, he needed more members. He needed members who were paying their dues because that's how he was paying his bills. And something happened when Billy Joe Applin was killed, which was that there were these allegations of of impropriety in the trial. And I've I've like chased these things down to the end of the earth and they're they're all baseless. But he decided that he was going to go and do a, a fact-finding mission to find out what went wrong. Because the young man, Sao Nguyen, who had killed Billy Joe, was somewhat astonishingly, he was acquitted by an all-white jury in a very rural part of Texas, a very conservative part of Texas. And he was acquitted on grounds of lawful self-defense. And that was just too much for, for many of the whites, but also for Lewis Beam. So he went down to Sea Drift and said he was going to do a fact-finding mission. And as soon as he got there, there was a bank of news crews. Cronkite's team was there. There was national news coverage. And it was like he had picked up a live wire. Every time he he started talking about the problem of Vietnamese shrimpers, he would get national news and he would get new members that would join the Klan after that. And so 
a year or so after Billy Joe's killing, this whole story basically goes on hyperspeed now up in Galveston Bay, where there is a, a garish and pretty ghastly campaign led by Lewis Beam and a number of white shrimpers to just get the Vietnamese off the coast. I mean, this is, you have to imagine, this is not like 1950s. This is 1980 now, 1981. And there are Klan rallies with a thousand people chanting white power where they're burning a boat on which the words USS Viet Cong were painted. The Klan was doing boat patrols in Galveston Bay where there were a dozen armed robed and hooded Klansmen patrolling the bay, looking for Vietnamese shrimpers to harass. Uh, there was an effigy of a Vietnamese refugee hanging from one of the outriggers. And Louis Beam gave a very public warning to the Vietnamese. He said that they had 90 days. He called it the Grand Dragon's Dispensation. 90 days to get out or else there would be blood, blood, blood. And so the middle, the middle portion of the book then deals with how the Vietnamese responded to that threat. And it is really a thrilling story, I have to say, Kirk Wallace Johnson. I mean, this whole book is The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and the Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast. There's a whole other fight for justice that it really provides a contrast to what was going on with the KKK and the whites on the one hand and the Vietnamese on the other. And that's the one that Diane Wilson fought and is still fighting, by the way. Uh, tell us about Diane Wilson and about her fight against the Formosa plastics plant. I, I'm not sure that this book would have existed without Diane, to be honest. Uh, I think it would have been too grim a subject, too. I, I don't know that I would have personally chosen to write it, but she really, in the end, becomes this sort of beacon for both me and for the reader, I hope. But she she lived through all of this. She's from that same small town in Seadrift. She was there the night that the Vietnamese boats were were torched. But she's she's a fourth generation shrimper, and to my knowledge, the the lone female shrimper on that coastline. But she kept pushing back, saying to her white male colleagues, "You guys, the the Vietnamese are not the problems. Look at the look at the shoreline." Look at these plants. Look at the water. Look what look what's happening. Look what we're pulling up. She kept she was building a, a kind of inventory in her fish house freezer of all of these mutated specimens of of fish and and crabs and shrimp. And she avoided. She didn't. She was not dragged down into this sort of swamp of racism uh, and this backlash against the Vietnamese. She was the lone voice fighting these plants and trying to rally her her town against them but this was i mean her her battle really began in the late 80s and it as you said it's still going but in the course of that battle i mean she lost nearly everything dear to her i mean her her marriage broke apart her relationship with her kids was strained she became a, a pariah in town because she was essentially threatening to bite the hand that fed the community uh, since everyone was working at these plants, she had death threats. Somebody sabotaged her boat. She was pushed to the brink of, of suicide at one point. Her dog was shot. Her dog was shot. I mean, she she kept soldiering on, though, staging these grueling hunger strikes to try to force 
these corporations like Formosa and others to the negotiating table to try to get them to clean up their act and to and to discharge less toxic stuff and to face penalties for when they did. And in the end, after 30 years, and I mean, there really is no end to this story, but after 30 years of struggle, she managed to rally white and Vietnamese shrimpers to her side. And in 2018, she made history. She won the largest ever settlement under the Clean Water Act against Formosa for well over $50 million. Everyone thinks that she's now rich. She has that she ended up with that money. I can I can attest that she is not, that she's living on about $405 a month. But she now represents one of the last best hopes for shrimping and crabbing along this Texas coastline because she's using that money to try to clean these bays up, but also to get to the what we were speaking about at the top of our conversation, she's trying to bring these shrimpers, these solitary, individualistic men together to form co-ops so that they're not competing against each other and driving the, the, the value of their daily catch down. And she's having quite a bit of success with it. But, you know, as you said, it's not, it is not lost on me that the, the lone female in this story was the only one that could really see clearly. And I think that she, I mean, if you were to reduce this whole book into something, you know, bite-sized, which is hard to do, but this is really a story about a group of people who felt that their future was getting bleaker. They didn't see their kids following them into their way of life, into this tradition. They were finding it harder and harder to make ends meet. And there was this whole host of huge structural systemic things that were the cause of it. All the concrete that we poured over the estuaries, all of the toxic stuff being dumped into those bays, globalization and free trade deals, all of this. But they looked at this small number of refugees, of people that look different from them, and they said, let's get rid of them and everything will be great again. And they tried doing that and they brought shame to themselves and to their community. They debased their, their names. And it turns out that after all of that, it, it wasn't the Vietnamese that were causing the problems to these bays. It was the plants. And so that's where Diane Wilson really becomes the, the beacon here. She's the one that the only one that was able to correctly diagnose the problem here. You know, I mean, there's an incredible scene in the book, which I will not give away, but it is a, a scene of, of a real turning point. I mean, at first, she faced incredible intimidation, as you've outlined some of it. I mean, real threats to her life. And she did get some of the workers from the plants who would give her tips, but they wouldn't come forward because they were too afraid. She went to the Vietnamese, and those were the first people who actually supported her, and then eventually were joined by uh, some of the other, some of the white fishermen. So talk about what's going, you know, is there hope for this community now? Um, they still, they're facing, you know, sea level rise, as well as uh, the fact Formosa, right now she's fighting a huge expansion of the Formosa plant. What's happening now? Well, this is not a thriving industry at the moment. Bay shrimping, which is, you know, you can go out in the morning and work for five or six hours and, and work in these bays. I mean, that that's pretty much extinct at this point. There's still a Gulf shrimping industry where this is where the much larger boats will go out for a month at a time. But that industry 
is still kind of on life support because of something that happened during the Trump administration, but the the H-2B visa program, which is a short-term skilled worker visa program that had allowed Mexicans and Guatemalans to come up and work those boats for a month at a time, that was essentially throttled. And so a ton of these Gulf shrimp boats are just idling at docks right now because they can't find Americans who are willing to go out and do that hard work. Climate change is producing increased rainfall along that coast, which alters the salinity level that crustaceans need. So it's harder for shrimp and crab to, to grow there and to thrive there. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm Swedish by by blood, and so we tend to be a skeptical, dour group. I don't see, I mean, I think Diane really is the last hope for this community. Um, I don't see big industry being curbed to protect this small number of shrimpers and crabbers. Um, there are more and more of these permits being issued. It's a sort of race to the bottom, as, as far as I can tell. And I mean, you know, this part of the country, this is some of the most toxic water in America. It has a nickname of being the cancer belt. And, and it got to the point that I could tell who worked at which factories and at which plants based on the type of cancer that they had. This is a tragic story of these communities that have sacrificed their health and long-term health of the bays in exchange for short-term work, but that's really the only op options that they have. A lot of these people, they don't. this is all they know. They're not going to move to the bay and start learning how to code. And so it, you go down there and you see these, these are like ghost towns now where there's, there's not a single, in Sea Drift, when I went there, there was maybe one shop that was still open uh, that wasn't boarded up. And people basically go work at these plants and get sick. And then those that are still trying to fish are, are eking it out. But that's why so much rides on what Diane is able to achieve. And finally, just to circle back to the Klan, it was very interesting to see how many of the themes that we are dealing with today in the whole rise of the white supremacy movement are expressed by Lewis Beam and the people that he organized. He went on, uh, continued to go on to, to organize, and, and I believe in the Pacific Northwest after he left this area. Draw the parallels between what happened then and what's going on today. Well, the, the Vietnamese ended up standing their ground against the Klan somewhat heroically. And they, <clears throat> they sued the Klan and they got Lewis Beam's militia broken apart. There was an emergency injunction issued against the Klan, preventing them from harassing the Vietnamese any further. And Lewis Beam flees to the Aryan Nations compound in Idaho, where he set out to write the book and, and a series of essays that basically became the blueprint for a new generation of white supremacists. The main essay is called Leaderless Resistance, where he basically said, look, we don't need to have big rallies and big clan meetings that are liable to be infiltrated. You guys know what you need to do. Just go out and do it. And so he's he's considered the the guy who basically popularized the lone wolf tactic but he's also been hailed as the godfather of the alt-right. There's endless debate about whether or not his books uh, and his writings inspired Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. But, you know, what he was barking about in these rallies, that the Vietnamese were brought here to replace you, 
and this uh, great replacement theory that has now been mainstreamed in this country. Uh, I mean, I I saw uh, a congresswoman talking about replacement this morning on a clip. Fox News and Tucker Carlson speaks about the replacement theory quite quite regularly. And so this all happened 40 years ago, the events of my book. But to me, it's practically screaming at the current moment that if you're allowing yourself to be whipped up by some demagogue into believing that the reason why things are getting a little bit dimmer for you and your your view of the future, if you've allowed yourself to believe that it's because of a, of a small number of people whose skin is different than yours, who have nothing, who are the product of oftentimes, who are here oftentimes because of our own wars, you've been duped. The things that are are ailing this country are much more systemic and they're much more tied up in in the extreme accumulation of wealth and in the, the sort of excesses of capitalism than they are, you know, a handful of Vietnamese pushing out into on, on cheap little crab boats every morning. Um, but that that story, once you once you recognize the contours of it, it, it's hard not to see it playing out in every industry and in every town in this country. And it is a story that you just tell in such a profoundly, well, it's a, it's a thrilling story to read. It's a story of, it's enraging on the one hand and also hopeful on the other. I mean, heroes like Diane Wilson do exist. It's a terrific book. And I want to thank you, Kirk Wallace Johnson, so much for talking with us here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a real joy. Kirk Wallace Johnson. In addition to being a writer, he's the founder of the List Project to Resettle Iraqi Allies, which resettled thousands of Iraqi refugees who were imperiled as a result of working for the U.S. during the war. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to an excerpt from The Fisherman and the Dragon. Next up, we listen back to my 2005 interview with Diane Wilson. Stay tuned after the break. Kirk Wallace Johnson. In addition to being a writer, he's the founder of the List Project to Resettle Iraqi Allies, which resettled thousands of Iraqi refugees who were imperiled as a result of working for the U.S. during the war. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to an excerpt from The Fisherman and the Dragon. Next up, we listen back to my 2005 interview with Diane Wilson. Stay tuned after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Diane Wilson started shrimping on the Texas Gulf Coast with her family at the age of eight and became a shrimp boat captain when she was 24. She's been an environmental activist since 1989, when she took on Formosa Plastics, then one of the biggest polluters in the U.S. Her 2005 book, An Unreasonable Woman, describes her struggle to preserve a way of life that is now even more endangered and may never recover. Writer's Voice spoke to her in October of 2005. I was joined on the interview by Daisy Mathias, who was Writer's Voice co-host at that time. In that interview, I started out by asking Diane Wilson about her family's history in Seadrift, Texas. All of us have been in Seadrift. All of my brothers were shrimpers. My dad was a shrimper. 
I started shrimping on a shrimp boat when I was eight years old. I used to, would go out in the bay and we used to spend the night out there because sometimes when a norther would come through, the shrimp would bunch and you could, you could expect maybe you were really going to get a good catch. And so I would spend the night on top of a shrimp boat with a norther blowing in. It was unusual to have a woman be a shrimp boat captain, though. Right? Oh, it's, it was it was very rare for a woman to be a shrimp. It still is very rare. There are women out there, but they're usually the deckhands. The men are at the wheel, and the women, they put on the, as they call the stupid end of the stick, and they stick them out on the deck and just say, uh, keep your fingers nimble and keep your mouth shut. And uh, women were, they, they were very good deckhands. So you've been an unreasonable woman for many years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in many fields, mm-hmm. in many fields. So what changes have you seen in the Gulf over the years? Now, this is a place where you've had a share as a shrimp boat captain uh-huh. and, a shrimp, <laughs> and, and a shrimper. Is that mm-hmm. what you would call That's it? right. That's right. As a shrimper, you've had a share of this territory increasingly, it seems, with chemical plants. Oh, yeah. Like the chemical plants started coming, like Union Carbide came down like in 1950. There was Alcoa that was there in 1950, and Alcoa was the one that was, uh, they had a process that they were making, but they used these mercury cells, and it generated a lot of mercury. Uh, matter of fact, they, they don't do it anymore and because it's, it's such a, it puts out such a waste of mercury, and mercury is, right now, is getting directly linked with, with autism. But in those days, they had all these these cells and they were totally out of control. Matter of fact, the workers in the unit were, there was so much mercury, their wives had to drive them to work because the workers couldn't even drive a car. Now, one of your sons has had That's right. some issues with autism. Well, yeah, he's got a major way. issue with autism. He was he was born that way. And, uh, and I know when he was first born, they thought maybe he was blind or he was deaf. And then they, they gradually diagnosed him with autism. How's he doing now? Davy Crockett's doing, uh, he's doing, that's his name. I used to sing Davy Crockett to him. He liked that song. David's doing real well, a, a lot better than uh, most children. And he's, matter of fact, he's taken a couple of college courses. He loves mechanical things, computers. I think he relates to them more than human beings, which is a lot of autisms, mm-hmm. you know, as social problems, a lot of that. Did you make a connection between the pollution and, and your son's condition? Well, I knew, I remember when I first started, like maybe my second meeting, I had uh, called this meeting and I had this group of people, they were economic development, they were the mayors, they were chamber of commerce, and they came in and just absolutely disrupted the whole meeting and they said I was... Uh, a hysterical woman. I didn't know what I was talking about. I was making it all up. And I was telling them about my concern because there's a lot of, there's a lot of learning disabilities. You know, my own son was autistic and I I knew a lot. There was a lot of families with learning disabilities and um, problems with their children. And I said, well, we were really concerned about what the possible impacts to our, our children and there was a woman there, and she stood up, and she said, well, she was from the school district, and she'd never heard of pollution having anything to do with learning disabilities. And the only thing she knew that was related to that, I guess it was when you end up marrying your cousins, a genetic. I mean, it was like a slap in, it was like a slap in the face that, you know, you know they, they came in like they were slumming. You know, they come into our fishing town. 
we've never heard of this and therefore you must be crazy. That's right. So Formosa Plastic, those were the guys that you went up against. Tell us something about this firm. Tell us a story about how you found out about it. Well, in the beginning when I first started, I had no idea of any of the chemical companies out there because I was I was a fisherwoman. I fished on the bays and I took care of my kids. But when I found out our county was number one in the nation, I started doing a little research. And then I found out a lot of the reason why there was such a controversy is that our this great state of Texas was bringing down one of the worst polluters in the world. Matter of fact, at that period, like 1989, Taiwan was known, the only thing that was keeping pace up with their economic development was their environmental destruction. And that at that time, the Kuomintang was still running the government. I mean, the newspapers were owned. A lot of the factories were owned. And this man, Chairman Wong, who owned Formosa Plastics, he was the 11th richest man in the world. And his pollution was so bad that villagers under the Kuomintang government they rioted and throwed rocks at him, and he was so outraged. Well, he was said, by gosh, he was going to go Texas and Louisiana, and we just fought to get him down here. What do you mean by you fought to get him down well, here? Well, what I mean is the state of Texas and Louisiana, they were doing everything in the sun to get Formosa into their state. So Texas and Louisiana was doing this all-out wrestling match over what could they give to get them down, and Texas got him because we gave them $250 million in tax abatements. And they saw that as economic development, but they weren't counting the pollution costs. Oh, they absolutely did not even look into it. I know uh, a reporter asked economic development, and he says, well, did you know this was a number one polluter? And he says, well, we're economic development. That is that is not our place to ask questions mm-hmm. like that. Well, now, when you said that your county was number one, you meant number one in being polluted. That's right. Yeah. It was it was actually the reason why I got on my environmental hat, if you want to call it that, is uh, because it was the first time the toxic release inventory had ever been made public. And a shrimper with, because uh, at that time, shrimping was so bad, I was running a fish house and I had one of my shrimpers and he had three different types of cancer. He had these big lumps underneath his skin like tennis balls. And he brought me this story, Associated Press And it said that our county, which was Calhoun County, was number one in the nation for toxic disposal to the land. And we not were only ranking number one in toxic disposal to the land. We were ranking in injection wells where you put it down in wells. We were ranking in air emissions out in the air. We were ranking in them taking the waste and transferring it over to another county. So we, I mean, our little county is like 15,000 and we were ranking all over the place, and that just blew my mind. You're listening to Writer's Voice, and we're playing a 2005 interview with Texas Gulf Coast shrimp boat captain and environmental advocate Diane Wilson. Her book, An Unreasonable Woman, was published by Chelsea Green Press. I was joined on the interview by Daisy Mathias, who co-hosted Writer's Voice with me in 2005. How many tons of chemicals are you talking about here? Oh, wow. Let me see. I... Well, I think Alcoa actually was the plant that landed us on the toxic release inventory as the number one. And that one plant, Alcoa, had 51% of the entire state's 
total emissions to the land. And, and the thing it is, is, is I know the toxic release inventory is, is a real good deal. And people read toxic release inventories. They say, oh, wow, well, maybe we're gaining a little bit or, you know, and, and, and the chemical plants will say, you know, we're doing real good because, you know, we're not up there number one anymore. And the thing is, we were number one one year. The next year, we weren't there. And it was because the chemical companies and the politicians went to the EPA, who was a politician's campaign manager, and they delisted it. They just pulled it right off. That's how you get rid of waste. Wow. Yeah, by pulling it off the list? Yeah, take it off the list. Wow. Right. By another kind of pull. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You said that you were running a shrimp house because there weren't that many shrimp around. That's right. Is there a connection here that... Well, I, I think there's a big connection in it, and it is, it's a real tragedy, too, because uh, I remember when I was very, very young, and, and the shrimpers had a real tradition. There was a real moral stance they had about how they shrimped, that they only went out on the beginning of... As a matter of fact, it was like a celebration, like the first day of shrimp season. They would go out the night before. They would all tie up together and it was like this ritual. It was, I can still remember how, how fantastic and all that brotherhood of the shrimpers. And you never went after small shrimp. You never shrimped at night. And then the chemical plants were there and you were starting getting the brown tides and the green tides and the red tides. And we had dolphin die-offs and we had fish that were literally trying to climb out of the water. And then sometimes the shrimpers would the shrimp are in the estuary sometimes in the beginning of a season and a shrimper could go and he could put over a little trinet which is a little bitty like a 10 foot or a five foot net and just to see what the season is going to be like and the shrimp would be there one week and the next week they were gone i mean they're vanished they didn't move they vanished where do they go well that's a good question. I, uh, the only thing is I can tell you is uh, a number of years ago, all the shrimp in Galveston Bay, they literally vanished overnight. And it, it was such a extraordinary event that it was even in the, I remember they even did an editorial at the Houston Chronicle about all the shrimp disappearing in Galveston Bay, which is a big bay. And there's a lot of shrimpers there. And they just vanished. And it was probably a couple months later, I was in Austin talking to, uh, I think it was Texas Water Commission at that time. And I mentioned that and he said, oh yeah. He said, yeah, we, we know about that. He said, uh, there was a chemical and we tracked it all the way to Union Carbide and it was a chemical. They had a big spill and it wiped out the shrimp. You were a shrimp boat captain and then you worked in your brother's fish house. That's right. Are you shrimping now? Well, uh, one of my final actions, I was fighting for most of plastics wastewater permit, and I had fought it all the way to the appellate court in Washington, D.C., and come to find out, here I was fighting their, their permit, because they, they, they couldn't discharge at that point, and I was talking with the EPA woman attorney, and uh, I had the same name as Formosa's woman lawyer, and so she thought she was talking to Formosa's lawyer. And so she was just talking about this discharge. They were putting millions of gallons, and they didn't have a permit, and the EPA knew it, and was like, oh, except the only party that didn't know it was me. 
And I'd been fighting them for about four years, and I was so outraged that I, I had to do something. And the only thing I could think of was to take my shrimp boat and take the motor out. In the dead of night, I had a shrimper pull my shrimp boat all the way around to Formosa Discharge, and I was going to drop it. I was going to sink it right on top of that illegal discharge because I was outraged. I was I was outraged. It's like federal law, nothing, you know, it, it, it didn't matter. They were going to get their permits. They were going to do what they wanted, and, and we were supposed to, as citizens and as fishermen who lived on the bay, we were supposed to just take it, accept it, and I refused to accept it. So, so no, I don't have a shrimp boat no more. So, and, and so you did that? Yeah. Well, I was on my way of sinking it, and I had a cousin who, you know, when, when industry finds out who is opposing them, they find out who all their allies are. So they knew the fishermen were probably my allies. So they proceeded to get my cousin, who was at that time the spokesperson for the fishermen, and they hired him for $65,000 a year to be a spokesperson for them and just to follow me around to see what I was up to. And uh, he told them I was uh, taking my shrimp boat out there in the middle of the night to sink it on top of their discharge. So he, they told the Coast Guard, and I had three boatloads of Coast Guard catch me at midnight in a stormy sea. I think a norther had blown in. It was wild as a March hare. And, uh, and the Coast Guard said I was a terrorist on the high seas and... <laughs> $500,000 in penalties and wow. 19 years in the penitentiary. And here Formosa was discharging illegally. But they but, weren't getting any penalties. No. You didn't get convicted of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what well, happened we is you here. they, they uh, confiscated my boat and had me kind of tied up at the docks. And the interesting thing was is that it was having such a hard time getting fishermen involved because... The, they they are in such a crisis, and they are so depressed, and they do not believe anything will save them anymore. But when they saw the Coast Guard hauling me in, and all I had, there's about 19 walking all over there and giving me citations and this and that. These people who have a hard time getting involved, they got in their boats, went out in the bay in the middle of a storm, and did a protest and, and it made headlines in the uh, Houston Chronicle. And the chemical plant that I was finding was so perturbed with me. He said, what is it going to take to shut her up? Mm-hmm. And so I got zero discharge from them. Zero discharge. That's right. What is you, that? It's, it's where, well, all of these chemical plants have discharges. And they have wastewater discharges. And they average around 5 million gallons per day of toxins of everything from vinyl chloride to benzene to chlorine to you name it. So they're allowed to discharge a certain amount of toxic waste? A certain amount, but the thing of it is they do their own monitoring. So Nobody else is monitoring them? No, they're their own monitor. Every once in a while the EPA or the state says, hey, they're um, fixed to come down. And so suddenly, you know, things get shut off and everything is just Generally peachy. Sometimes these are not. these are called voluntary controls. Voluntary controls. So yes. when they, how, how well do they work? <laughs> I don't think they work at all, quite frankly. So when the inspectors do come down, the plant's been forewarned oh, and yeah. they shut it off. Oh yeah. Matter of fact, I've had some fellows talk, and, and this was just for OSHA that OSHA was coming down, and they were given like two weeks of warning. The fellows came in, and said, "Okay, you fellows, all our our places where we need to fix this, you clean it spick and span." 
and the fellow didn't show up to noon, and he made a fast walkthrough through the whole thing, and then the plant manager took him to dinner. You're hearing an interview with Diane Wilson about her book, An Unreasonable Woman, a true story of shrimpers, politicos, polluters, and the fight for Seadrift, Texas. Wilson was a Gulf Coast shrimp boat captain who became an environmental activist when she found that her livelihood was threatened by toxic pollution in the Gulf of Mexico. Although she eventually won the support of many of her fellow shrimp boaters, she also faced opposition from others in her community. It came from a lot of different directions. Some of it came from the fact that I was just a woman. And for where I come from, for a woman to get out front and speak and call meetings, you know, because I remember a lot of people, well, they would go up to my husband at that time and they'd say, why can't you control that woman of yours? And, you know, and then he would get real upset. It was like, why couldn't he control me? So I would get that angle. And then it was it became a class issue. It was like she was a fishing woman and is like she doesn't really know what she's talking about. And so I, I started getting this that I was just this low class, uneducated, that I didn't know nothing. And that why don't you stay home? You don't know what you're messing with. And then I started getting the stuff, the, the political stuff, because they just absolutely did not want any dirty laundry. You know, I even had the, the bank president and he would come down and naturally he had been talking to industry and he'd say, well, you know, we just we just can't have this this dirty laundry being aired. And, and, and what you need to do is, you know, and they would offer me all kinds of little bribes if I would just sit down and let industry control it, and I could be the head, and they would let me be the head, and I would get a little salary and pay for everything. You know, and and anybody that tried to join up, you know, if they were trying to get a loan at the bank, suddenly they couldn't get a loan at the bank because corporations were sitting on as directors of the banks. You know, if you had a cousin that worked at the plant, suddenly they were fingered. One of my board of directors, who was my, my brother, he quit shrimping because it was so bad and started working for the plant. For Formosa Plastics. Formosa Plastics. And my other brother, uh, he was afraid the fish house was going to be burned down, so he fired me. So were you ever tempted to take any of those bribes, and, and how did you withstand it? I mean, you, you're not exactly rolling in dough yourself. I'm one of those people that the only thing that has meaning for me is is integrity. I feel like that's the only thing that I have, and I have, I have a real sense of family with that bay, and I have a brotherhood with the fishermen, and and I felt it was it was a moral it was a moral path I was working, so it became real important that I did the right thing, and and actually I would a lot of the way that I could I could tolerate it is I was reading Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, and. You put it on a much bigger perspective, and it becomes the hero's journey. And it's not just these little people arguing or little pieces of money or little salary. It becomes much bigger. It becomes a mythic journey. And I felt that I was on the hero's journey. That's what I felt I was doing. So ultimately, well, when you're on the hero's journey, you can end up inspiring a whole lot of other folks, too. And Do you think that's something, I mean, I, I can imagine that modesty might lead uh-huh. you to say, oh, uh-huh. no, I never inspired uh-huh. anyone. But, you know, really, taking a look at it, what about the support? Did that come to you? The support at the town, like I, I had uh, 
the instance where the fisherman got behind me, and I even had uh, this time where I got the entire fishing community behind me. But long term, it's been it's still been very difficult. It's not like you get them one time and you got them the rest of the time. So it's a gradual thing, and I and I think a lot of it is that, like I could never get a local newspapers. You know, they, they just would not give me any credibility at all. So sometimes I would get outside attention. You know, it's, it's this thing about the prophet is not valued in his own land, and that's true. But sometimes you'd see like a Houston Chronicle giving me credibility, and they're they're like taken aback. It's come through strange directions. This was the first time activism for you, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I was I was not an activist. I'm not a joiner. I'm still having a real tough time being a, a joiner. You know, in, in the beginning, I used to think I was absolutely the wrong person for this. I kept thinking, I'm the wrong person. You know, I don't like talking. I really, really don't. And I didn't like having meetings, and I didn't like having to deal with people, and I just wanted the solitude of the bay. And I kept thinking, there's got to be someone out there who knows this better, who's smarter, he's got, who's better educated. And about three or four years later, I realized I was the perfect person, and it was because I had a passion for the bay. And it was my passion that was the real important thing. You described in the book how difficult it was for you to stand up in front of meetings and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and talk with people. And, yeah. But obviously you you got past that because it was important enough to you. Well, it was. And like I said, I've, I'm really, really not a speaker because when I was in elementary school, I had like six years of speech therapy. I can remember when I absolutely eliminated the alphabet. It was like I, I couldn't even approach it. I know that's a strange thing, but it was something when I was young. And so I couldn't even talk because I couldn't approach the alphabet. I couldn't approach the letters. And when I was in high school, I don't think I said a word the entire three or four years. So it was very difficult for me to talk. And a lot of times I got a son who's autistic. And sometimes I think maybe I had a silent gene in myself that I passed that on to him. I, I really did. But the thing of it is, when there is something that means so much to you, you do it. And it's like, and I can remember I was shaking. Sometimes I was shaking so much, I was surprised that I was standing. And I remember one time it was a meeting with the head, the administrator of the EPA out of Washington, and all of these national groups people, and they let one little grassroots, and they let me in. And I I nearly cried. I nearly cried in front of him. So we were talking earlier before the program began about how you always feel protective of your children, That's right. especially if you have a child who's in trouble, the mother tiger kind of thing. And it sounds to me like you're a mother tiger about your bay. Oh, I am. I, I very much am. Uh, matter of fact, sometimes I almost felt like it was fate. It was like I could see, I could see the bay, and she was a woman, and it was like she put the circumstances out that I would. I would be the, her fighter. Diane Wilson speaking to Writer's Voice in 2005. Her book is An Unreasonable Woman, out from Chelsea Green Press. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Listen again for free, read book excerpts, and sign up for the podcast at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon.